Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. When the Union won the Civil War and ended slavery, it was assumed that the Southern way of life had been defeated. But instead of fading away, the system that has sustained the Confederacy moved westward, where it established a foothold. <clears throat> the Western and Southern regions had many similarities, and in the 20th century, this alliance gained even more power when Western politicians like Goldwater, Nixon, and Reagan claimed to embody cowboy individualism and worked with Southerners to embrace some of the ideology of the Confederacy. Heather Cox Richardson, a professor of history at Boston College, has written a new book called How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. It's published by Oxford University Press, and I'm very pleased that it brings Professor Richardson to our show now. Hello. Hello. Are you saying that the Civil War is still ongoing or that the South actually won, as, as you say in your title? You know, I have to laugh. I, if, had I been able to encapsulate the book as neatly as you just did in that introduction, it would have been a much shorter book, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, well, we have so, a lot of details that we're going to discuss over the next hour. It's okay. <laughs> well, I did flesh it out a little bit more than that, but boy, did you hit the nail on the head with that description. So what the book really argues is it tries to explain why in this moment there are people who are doubling down so on Confederate imagery, Confederate statues, Confederate flags, and Confederate language, um, when we sh it feels like we should have left all that in the dust in 1865. And what it does is it identifies two ways of looking at the organization of society, that ideology that was embraced by the Confederacy, that a few rich, well-connected men should run everything, and the, the ideology that was embraced by Abraham Lincoln and the early Republican Party, that in fact society works best when you make sure that everybody has equal access to both resources and equality before the law. And that those two ideologies have been struggling in America since the beginning, but while they should have there should have been a resolution in 1865 when democracy won, the peculiarities of American history gave a new life to the ideology of oligarchy. So are you saying that one of the essential paradoxes of American history is that democracy for some has depended on inequality for others? Well, it has historically. That's certainly the moment in which America was born, right? The idea that, that we have this weird um, paradox that the same men who insisted that all men were created equal literally enslaved other men, and then they couldn't even begin to conceive of the idea that women could be equal. So you, from the beginning, you've had this idea that equality depends on inequality for certain people. And what I've argued in the book is that that has given oligarchs a language to challenge democracy anytime it looks like women and people of color might actually being might be, be on the verge of approaching equality, uh, with white men, that enables oligarchs to say, oh, wait a minute, you know, in a sort of corollary to that paradox, if they become equal, you by definition, you white men by definition, will become unequal. And that, I think, has been a, a bear that has haunted us since the very beginning. But I don't think that it has to be the, our future because it was our past. We just simply have to recognize that it was there and find ways to address it. One of the reasons that people who say all lives matter don't get the point about Black Lives Matter. Uh, In other I'm words, sorry. when they say all lives matter, they're not understanding what Black Lives, why people are saying Black Lives Matter. It's They're not saying all lives don't matter. Y yes, and that's that's actually a really interesting one there because 
implicit in Black Lives Matter is all lives matter. Hmm. But one of the things that I find fascinating about that setup, because of course all lives matter, except that it has taken on this, um, this anti, if you will, Black Lives Matter uh, cast to it. And one of the things I find fascinating about that is that in 1866, after Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated, and Andrew Johnson, who was a Democrat, he was a white supremacist, when he took office, uh, the, the Congress, which was trying to redress the fact that formerly enslaved people in the South couldn't testify in court, couldn't, um, couldn't, uh, it basically had no civic identity, had no civil rights, uh, the, the Congress tried to take that on by guaranteeing that African Americans could testify in court and by providing some basic uh, protections for African Americans. And Andrew Johnson vetoed those two bills on the grounds that by talking about black people, it gave African-Americans, and this would have been African-American men at the time, it gave African-American men rights that no white men had. Well, of course, the laws had been written for white men, so they didn't need to be called out in the laws. But the fact that there were these laws to redress the problems of the extraordinary violence in the South after the Civil War that African-Americans could not address because they couldn't speak in court, um, the, the fact that, they, that the Congress tried to address that and, and singled out black Americans made Andrew Johnson come down on them and say, you can't do that because you're giving black people rights that white people don't have. It's, a, it's, it's almost the same kind of, uh, of reversal or same kind of, um, I guess, reversal is the word that you see here in the conflict between all lives matter versus black lives matter. So after the war, um, did former Confederate leaders try to reestablish their control over the government and reestate aspects of the pre-war society? For example, uh, did black codes replace slave codes? Yes. Well, after the war, um, immediately after the war, and, and, you know, again, laughing about how well you encapsulated this particular book, we could, of course, spend the rest of our lives on the radio talking only about 18, the summer of 1865. So there's a lot that I'm not going to actually go into here. But, um, but yeah, the, the southern states were supposed to, under, the, under Johnson's um, uh, tutelage, they were supposed to rewrite their state constitutions to accept the 13th Amendment to uh, repudiate the Confederate debts and also to nullify the ordinances of, of uh, secession, not simply saying, you know, oopsie poopsie, we shouldn't have done that, but by saying this is illegal, <laughs> it, it can't be done. And instead they went further and they produced a number of state laws that um, that basically remanded African Americans not to legal slavery, but to a system of um, a, a lower class status that would have replicated in many ways their status as enslaved people. And if they ran up against the law and got arrested, for example, they could be thrown in jail and fined. And then people, it doesn't specify that it's white people, but of course it would have been white people, could pay their fines, and then they would have to work off those, uh, those fines for the person who paid the fines. Well, you know, the line between that and legal enslavement is pretty darn thin. So they tried to do that. It's worth remembering that even though those laws did, in fact, become practiced to some degree in the summer of 65 into um, the end of that year, because those state constitutions were never ratified, they legally never went into force, but they were, uh, they were certainly practiced. So, yeah, the southern, the southern states did, in fact, try to turn the, the South back into something that looked very much like the pre-war South, but without the legal institution of slavery. 
So the Black Codes required former slaves to sign labor contracts with white employers and also restricted their ability to meet in groups and to own weapons. <laughs> As you say, a kind of form of quasi-slavery. Um, now, weren't some of the uh, the very men who'd been responsible for trying to destroy the United States in the first place elected to Congress? Yes. Well, so this is one of the things that's really interesting about what happens in the summer of 65. And, of course, historians are prophets of the past, not of the future. So you can't really talk about what might have been. But the fact that Abraham Lincoln is murdered in April of 1865 is one of those moments in American history that honestly still I spend a great deal of time thinking about because I've seen the bullet that killed Lincoln. It's at the Ford's, at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., and it's just this little teeny tiny piece of metal. And you look at that, that tiny piece of metal and think, that changed the world. And to me, it's, it's too big to get my head around. But if Lincoln had lived, Reconstruction would have looked very different. Because what happened in the summer of 1865 is Congress is not in session. They have uh, gone away for a recess on the, the day of Lincoln's uh, second inaugural address or second inauguration. So, who, the, so for the summer of 65, between April and December of 1865, it's Andrew Johnson who is single-handedly in control of Reconstruction. And he, first of all, issues a proclamation that says that so long as you take an oath of office to the Union again, um, you are good. You've, you ha you're, you're pardoned. You have not pardoned. You are, you are welcome once again to have a civic identity. Um, and you are, you, you know, you, you exist again as far as the United States is concerned. And from that, he exempts a number of categories, high-ranking Confederate officials, um, people who had taken an oath to the Union government and then had broken it, and um, and people who are worth more than twenty thousand dollars, but those people, he says, and of course they will be the the leaders of the Confederacy and the leaders of the pre-war South. Those people, he says, he will pardon, and that he will be very generous with those pardons, and he is. Over the course of the summer of 1865, he pardons all but about fifteen hundred of those Confederate leaders. So when, and of course, a, a presidential pardon for a federal crime is a get out of jail free card. I mean, that's that's it. They're done. They are back in the United States body politic. So As our Congress, current president understands. Exactly, exactly. So when, the, when, when Congress comes back into session, they take a look at what Johnson has done, and they say, this so is not happening. We are not letting these people under his proclamation back in, and we can, we can address that. But we cannot address the presidential pardons. So they've got this huge problem on their hands that they have had to re that they have to deal with the fact that the leaders of the Confederacy are once again equal members of the body politic to the Northerners who had been fighting them in defense of the U.S. Uh, government just months before. And to make matters worse, well, and that, and that includes people like Alexander Stevens, the former vice president of the Confederacy, who was elected as a senator from Georgia. Exactly, and and to make matters worse. Uh, this is 18. This is almost 1866, right? Because it's eight, December 65 that they're all meeting back in Washington, and and actually quite literally under Johnson's constitutions, the South has held elections, and these people are back in Washington. Literally, we have diaries where they're they're wandering the streets, going, "Wow, the city really grew while we were away," <laughs> you know. But um, <laughs> but because it's 1865, almost 1866. Remember, there's going to be a census in 1870, and for the first time in American history, African Americans are going to be counted as a whole person rather than as three-fifths of a person. So those same leaders, Alexander Stevens and company, are going to have more power 
after the Civil War than they did before the Civil War. And that's going to create this huge trauma of representation and what it means to have a democratic government in the years after the Civil War. Because you say uh, that this progressive change actually added to the strength of white Southerners with the 1870 census? Yes, isn't that astonishing? People always forget censuses really matter. But think of what that's going to do. African Americans are now full people and not three-fifths of a people. So that means that uh, the people who are running for office now have actually uh, wind up having more power behind them. Yes, exactly. And that's why, of course, we, we have the 14th Amendment written the way it is. Uh, the idea that if you don't permit a certain percentage of your male population, because they're not talking about women at that point, um, to vote, then you're going to lose representation in Congress. And that is precisely why they did that. Now, people were moving west before and after the Civil War. What were some of the economic incentives for them to move during the 19th century? Well, the movement west, of course, begins... um, Now, I'm I'm stammering because, of course, you can't really talk about American history without talking about the entire movement West, but I won't go into all that. The important thing to remember for the purposes of this argument is that after 1821, with the Mexican Revolution and Mexico taking over control of its territory from the colonial power of Spain, you're going to have Eastern Americans. And and you'll you'll note in that book I don't use the word white because, of course, it's not just Euro-Americans who are moving West. It's also African-Americans who are moving West. And you've got people moving west into the American Southwest, into lands that at the time are uh, owned by Mexico. And then after 1848, you've got the, um, on the heels of the Mexican-American War, you have the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which is going to bring all those lands into America. And so what you've got in from the 1820s to the 1840s, and then after 1848, the discovery of gold in California and the gold rush out there, what you have got in this the early period is uh, Euro-Americans moving across the Mississippi River for opportunity, usually in an extractive economy, to get out furs, for example. Our early fur traders are going to be ones who start across the Santa Fe Trail from uh, uh, St. Louis into Mexico, but then who turn and move upward, up the Rocky Mountains and into the plains, trapping beaver especially, but also other pelts. And also people who are extracting gold or who are trading on that on that frontier in that land. So early on, they're going to come in contact with Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, Comanches, Kiowas, to some degree Crows, Apaches, and uh, by the, the 1840s, Chinese, uh, Chileans, people in the, in, who have come to mine in California. And so they're going to sort of reproduce the idea of a hierarchical society out there in the West before the Civil War. And then after the Civil War, when you get... Southerners especially moving into that territory to try and get away from um, the the terrible constrictions of life in the American Southeast, uh, where the the Confederacy has destroyed uh, the the Confederacy has been destroyed. They will reproduce in that region that same kind of ideology that Southerners had had: the idea that white men really should be on top of these subordinate peoples, the Indians, the Mexicans, the Chinese, uh, the Chileans, the, and later on the, 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 the Pacific Islanders who are going to be in that region. So they move west for opportunity, but they reproduce much of the ideology that had lived in the south before the Civil War. 
You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. My guest is uh, Heather Cox Richardson, and her latest book is How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America, published by Oxford University Press. So these extractive uh, industries now, they are the equivalent of cotton in, in a way? They yeah. extract The extractive economy just replaces oil and mining for cotton and also requires uh, huge capital investments and lots of unskilled workers. Yes, isn't it interesting? And, and by the 1890s, of course, we're going to have uh, significant amounts of migrant labor in, in growing, especially in sugar beet growing out in the middle of, in the, middle of the country. And it's, it, this, to me, is just a fascinating thing because we have, I think, this image of the American West in this period. This is the cowboy era of being this place where an individual can make it and rise. And yet historians have looked quite deeply into the, the economy of the region and it to, uh, into workers in the region. And they actually think the West really replicates the same sort of conditions that were rising in the East in the industrial cities, the idea that, that industry is really highly capitalized. So basically, you, know, you can't make it as a miner in the 18, 1880s. You know, it takes huge amounts of money to start a mine and to extract the ore and to mine the ore and to crush it and clean it and ship it. Um, so, so what happens in the West is you have uh, this really interesting economic and political system that really mirrors the South, and that's a system where you have a few uh, men who are very, very wealthy, and they are very well connected, and they have a lot of workers, uh, uh, you know, wage workers working for them. And that kind of society, where you have a few people basically running everything, begins to have its own culture. It begins to develop its own political culture, its own economic culture, and its own social culture. And this, this, this is really the picture of what the West looks like after the war, uh, and really right up until World War II. But even before the war, there was tension between the slave and free states that focused on the new states entering the Union. Did slavery um, ever extend much into the West? So this is actually a really important point, and I'm glad you brought it up. You know, when, when we talk about the Civil War, people seem to talk about the Civil War as about being between the North and the South. And while that is true, you have to always remember that it was between the North and the South over control of the West. It's after 1854 uh, when you have two problems, both the new land that America has acquired through the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, but also when Southerners take a look at the remains of the Louisiana Purchase from 1803 and say, hey, we got everything we could out of that purchase. Uh, we were allowed to expand up to the 3630 line with the Missouri Compromise in 1820. But now we want uh, the northern side as well, because we're not going to let northern states come in without a southern counterpart. When they do that, and when you have also hanging out there all that land from the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, um, southern leaders insist that their version of American society, that a few rich men should run everything, and this includes, by the way, not simply uh, the enslaved African-American population, but also the poor white population in the South uh, in the 1840s, and it, it increases dramatically in the 1840s and 1850s because there's a huge land boom in the South during that period. Um, they begin to believe that they need to expand. They need to expand into the Western lands, including into lands that had originally in 1820 been reserved for Northerners. And that, that both challenges nor the Northern economy, that is, 
poor white men will no longer be able to move west and take up land and rise because they're going to essentially have to work for the, the slave owners who are going to expand out there. But the, the, the bigger picture for Republicans like Abraham Lincoln, although he cares a lot about that, but the bigger picture for him is that if slave states are allowed to come into the Union and move slaves into new western territories, um, what's going to happen is even if you say, well, you can decide later on if these are going to be slave states or free states, um, under our Constitution, property must be protected. So even if one enslaved person is moved into a new territory, the Constitution says the state must protect slavery in that state. If you do that, the northern states, the free states, are going to be overawed in the House of Representatives and the Senate mm -hmm. pretty quickly. And as soon as that happens, the North is quite aware that the, the southern leaders are going to make slavery national. So the fight in 1850 is really not just about is there going to be slavery in the South. And people really don't doubt there's still going to be slavery in the South. It's a question of is there going to be slavery in the West. And if there is slavery in the West, it's a pretty clear indication that America is going to become a slave nation. And that's exactly what the Southerners wanted. And we have not yet talked about Native Americans. Many moved to uh, the West uh, as a part of U.S. policy. And then the newcomers in the West collided with Native American tribes who controlled their own empires in the region. Uh, Native Americans were also taken into slavery. So how did the ident identity of Western Americans become tied up with the idea of defeating and then dominating Native Americans? Well, this is, again, a long, important history. And the, to, to start with, of course... That's why I'm having you, that's why I'm talking to you on, my, on our show. <laughs> well, yes, but we're doing all of American history in an hour. It's sort of the high yeah. version, isn't it? We're not even going to get to the 20th century. We, well, we have to get to the 20th century, but go ahead. Of course, the, the West and the Spanish um, uh, colonists, uh, colonizers in the West enslaved uh, Native populations. And so, um, you know, many Americans tend to forget that while we have, uh, we, we have had um, African-American enslavement, we have also had indigenous American enslavement since the beginning. So that is a, is a factor in the American Southwest especially, and that's a, a, it has a number of ongoing practices that uh, Americans inherit when they push into that region as well. And it's worth remembering that, of course, Americans fight the, the Texans fight the Texas Revolution because they want to protect slavery in Mexico. Now, Mexico's gone ahead and gotten rid of enslavement, and Americans are like, hey, wait a minute, we kind of like it, and, and we're mm -hmm. going to take over this land because we want to grow cotton here and we can't do it without slaves. But um, while there is that, that history and that, that both history on the ground but also the ideological history defending human enslavement in the West, something really important happens during the Civil War. And that is that I made it a point to talk about how, how with the, um, the Santa Fe Trail, a number of Euro-Americans go from the east into the American Southwest. But most Americans in the American Northwest, in the Plains region, really had not come in contact with Plains Indians tribes in any sort of uh, meaningful, large way. That is, there are traders out there. And certainly people might have heard, you know, Easterners might have heard about Indians, but really American Indian uh, and Euro-American Indian, uh, American contact have been happening in the south, Southwest. But during the war, 
there's four major events that change the way that Eastern Americans are going to think about Native Americans. Because remember, theoretically, this war is about uh, equality before the law, right? So what does that actually look like when you're, when you're dealing with the integration of indigenous people into the American democracy? So the first thing that happens, of course, is in 1862 when Santees in Minnesota, who have lost their land in exchange for... Um, for both annuities and food every year to make up for the fact this is not a payment for the land. This is an ongoing contract that because they've given up their land, the government is going to provide them these things. Those con that contract does not get funded in 1862 because of the war, and the Santees start to starve. And when they do that, the young men of the tribe go to take back their lands. And in the process of what becomes known as the Dakota War, they end up killing... Uh, I think it's two to 400 uh, settlers in Minnesota. And because this happens in 62, right in the middle of the Civil War, Americans in the East interpret this as the Santees being deadly traitors. They're trying to destroy America. They're not simply fighting for their rights as pre-war uh, um, Indian uh, battles had been, but because it's during the Civil War, they become interpreted as traitors, as somehow bloodthirsty others. Mm -hmm. And that plays out really dramatically in the next few years when, first of all, we have, because of the Dakota War, the largest mass execution in American history at the end of 62, when um, almost 30 uh, Dakotas are hanged in, in, at all the same time in Minnesota. But then in 63-64, you also have uh, the American uh, Army rounding up the, um, the uh, Navajos in the southwest and marching them on the, the Navajos' long march, as it's known. It's sort of the equivalent of the Trail of Tears in the east. You have the Navajos' march to um, Boscredondo, which is a, um, a camp, basically a concentration camp near an army base, and many, many people die on that, and then they are concentrated in what is essentially a dehumanized condition, and Americans look again at this and say, well, they were fighting against us in the middle of the Civil War. And then finally, you have in, in 1864, you have the, uh, the, San, uh, the um, Sand Creek Massacre, and the Sand Creek Massacre is very important ideologically, again, because in that particular um, uh, event, uh, the the soldiers fall on a surrendered group of um, of Cheyennes in uh, in they're actually on a reservation and they are staying where they are by permission of the army which has put them there. They fall on them and not only do they massacre them, they butcher them and they take their body parts and and use them as things like tobacco pouches and. Ugh. The reason that that matters historically, I mean, aside from anything else, but I'm talking about ideologically, is that when soldiers or people do that to other human bodies, it's a pretty clear indication that they have dehumanized that, mm -hmm. that person. So in the course of the war, uh, in a, a war that is theoretically being fought for equality before the law, and the West, of course, being seen as a symbol of that because the U.S. government tries to organize the West very quickly during the war, and it does so, making it look very much with the boundaries that it has today. At the same time, they are recreating a hierarchical racial society based on the explicit dehumanization of indigenous peoples. And that, as I'm, as I'm trying to point out, really matters 
not simply to the indigenous peoples and not simply to Western history, but to all of us because it reinforces that ideology of the Confederacy that some human beings are better than others. And that, of course, strikes right to the heart of democracy and the survival of that idea that we are all equal before the law. And, and that extended to Chinese immigrants. Uh, despite the uh, contribution of Chinese railroad workers, uh, there was a Chinese ex Exclusion Act of 1882, the first law that restricted immigration to the United States. Uh, and that lasted until into the 20th century. Uh, it was finally overturned in 1843, although um, only partly. Uh, Richard Nixon, to some degree, finally ended it. Uh, so that's another factor. But uh, I have to go to a break very shortly. I did want to ask you about one other thing before we get to the 20th century. Um, how you mentioned the cowboy myths, uh, which depicted a hardworking white man who started from nothing and asked for nothing from the government except to be left alone. Weren't uh, many of the cowboys Mexicans and blacks? How did that myth develop? Yes, they were in fact, about a third of the cowboys were men of color. And it developed because of the timing of it. If you think about the rise of the cowboy mythology, it is the years of reconstruction. I mean, that's the myth of reconstruction. And it came during a period when white Southerners especially, but also white Democrats in the North, looked at the fact that the Republicans were trying to use the federal government to level the playing field for African Americans. And what they said was, and, and I just love this because we have so internalized this until the present, what they said was um, the use of the federal government to level the playing field for African Americans was inherently a redistribution of wealth because it would take tax dollars to have, for example, the army in the South or to have new schools or to have new roads, the things that the uh, formerly enslaved population really needed. And that redistrib redistribution of wealth literally meant that tax dollars would take money from hardworking white people and use it to give benefits to people of color. So it was therefore socialism, they're using that word by 1871, or communism, another word that comes up in 1871. In contrast to that communism or socialism in the East, they, they exalted the image of the American cowboy, whom in their telling was this free white man who just wanted to work hard on his own and make it on his own. Again, realistically, the federal government poured more money and effort into the American plains than it did any other region of the country. But that's not the way the mythology went. It is a political myth that the, the cowboy was this free, independent American. Pro promoted by a lot of movies as well. Uh, this okay. is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Before we get back to my conversation with Heather Cox Richardson, uh, I'd like to take a few minutes to talk to you about something very important. Like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been hit particularly hard by the pandemic, and a lot of our longtime supporters have been forced for economic reasons 
to pull their support for the station, which is why we're asking anyone who is able to, in this time of crisis, to come through for us and, and make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio and this show, Leonard Lopate at Large on the Air, coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. You can do that by calling 516-620-3602 right now or by going to our website, give2wbai.org. That's give and then the number 2wbai.org. And one great way to support the station without having to shell out a lot of money at any one time is to become a sustaining member, a BAI buddy. They're listeners who contribute $20 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do here on this show and all the other shows. Joining me now is my executive producer, Jesse Lent. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. It's great to be here. That's right. Anyone who becomes a BAI buddy uh, in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, that's a sustaining member who makes a contribution of $10 or more a month, will receive a free copy of How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America uh, by our guest, Heather Cox Richardson, the book, uh, that Leonard. You gotta read this his... book. You gotta read this book. <laughs> As you can see, this is a book that is right in the middle of the debate that America is having right now. And basically, a look at what got us here. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement has led to the largest protest movement in America. Hallelujah. Isn't that amazing? And uh, I, I just want to bring that up separate to any fundraising platforms. I think we can't say that enough on a progressive radio station that the revolution is happening and things are changing. And this is an incredible time uh, to be alive, even though we're all stuck at home with this pandemic. But getting back to the order at hand, uh, it, to, to, to the matter at hand, rather, if you call 516-620-3602 or go to the website give to wbai.org that's give then the number 2 wbai.org you will get a copy of how the south won the civil war you will get this history at your fingertips uh, you can read it you can give it to someone who maybe could really use it uh <laughs> And you'll be supporting Leonard Lopate at large. You'll be showing us that this kind of conversation matters to you and is important. And you want us to keep coming into your living room or car or wherever you are with your earbuds uh, weekdays from one to two. Uh, Leonard, this is obviously such an important subject. I really hope that we get a bunch of people who want to read this book, whether they donate or not. I hope that we're, we're, we're bringing some people to this title, no? I agree, and my only regret is that there's so much interesting material in this book that there's no way we can get to all of it in this discussion, which I hope will bring us all through the 20th century and into the current situation. Um, so one more time, and because I really want to get back to um, my guest. The, yes, uh, let's, the, let's let you get back to that conversation. The, the number, one more time. The, the number let me lay out the whole thing for oh yeah to talk about bai buddies how, how do you become a bai buddy uh i'm gonna I, say that but leonard first of all i want to say before that whatever method you want to contribute 
you are keeping community radio alive in New York City. There's no other station like BAI, as I've said before, if we're if we go uh, this whole school of radio and progressivism on the airwaves of New York City, it goes with us. So please, whatever contribution you're comfortable making, go, go to 516, uh, give, give a call rather to 516-620-3602 or go to the web uh, at give to WBAI.org. Now the deal, the special offer for today, and then I will let you get back to this fascinating conversation. If you become a BAI buddy, a sustaining member, by making a, co a monthly contribution of $10 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, if you sign up to do that right now during the show today, we will send you a free copy of How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America by today's guest, Heather Cox Richardson, as our way of saying thanks. I'm going to go now, but thanks from all of us. Well, I do want to remind listeners that we don't take ads. We don't uh, run commercials like any number of public radio stations do. We don't take funds, funding from uh, any, uh, any groups other than our listeners. So um, that's an important consideration. Uh, we depend on you completely for our support. So that allows us to remain kind of pure. Uh, and we hope that you will call us right now. And now I want to go back to my guest. Heather Cox Richardson. Uh, hi, you're on the air. Oh, you're back on the, we're back with this conversation. Well, yes, and, and if I may, I'd like to add a little bit to what you all were just talking about, and that one of the things that is so exciting about being alive in what is an entirely chaotic time is that the, all of the cards in America, and in the world, but really in America, have been thrown up in the air, and it's, and we, the people, get to choose the order in which they come back down and what we think is important. And the fact that so many people are supporting people, uh, uh, radio shows like W, like like your show, and and writing like mine, and and things coming from the ground up, I find enormously exciting. Uh, we're we're on a, a scary trajectory in a lot of ways, but it's also in a really exciting one. Now I want to get to 20th century politics because it's really interesting. Flip flop occurs. Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat oversaw unprecedented segregation in federal offices, including even instituting separate toilets. Uh, today, we think of the Democrats as the, the party of, of civil rights and, and um, well, some Republicans, but many, uh, much of the opposition seems to be coming from the Republican party. So what happened? Well, it didn't happen in the, in the what happened didn't happen in the Woodrow Wilson years. So the, the Democratic Party has an issue coming out of all of its history, but certainly since the Civil War, and that is that it's always got to hang on to those recalcitrant Southern Democrats who essentially recreate oligarchy in the, in the South. They basically make sure that African Americans cannot vote and that they're basically a one-party state after 1880. It's, it actually starts in 76, but it's not really obvious till 1880 and 1884. So the Democrats always have that, um, that uh, white supremacy to them. They managed in the, in the early 20th century, again, to begin working with Republicans in the West, the people, the Republicans in the West, who also like the idea, for example, of getting rid of the 15th Amendment, the idea that um, African Americans can vote, because they hate Chinese people and indigenous people. 
Um, those two groups work together, and that's really what's behind the Woodrow Wilson presidency. But it's really driven by the Democratic Party. The switch is going to happen really in, uh, after World War II, because in, after World War II, we get once again a moment like the Civil War, where people who previously had not had a voice in American society begin to get one and begin to demand one. So on the heels of that war, both the Civil War, but in this case World War II, you have sort of all hands on deck to fight that war. You have African-Americans fighting and Mexican-Americans and indigenous peoples and women and all sorts of groups that previously had been uh, uh, subordinated in America after, uh, you know, after the Civil War begin to say, hey, we just fought for democracy. How about we get a voice in this as well? And one of the great things about, um, about doing that book was getting to meet and really dig in a little bit to people like uh, Dr. Hector Garcia, who... Um, who creates the American GI Forum to get Africa, to get Mexican Americans at first and later um, all Hispanic Americans to vote. Anyway, once you've got all these new voices in society, there is a backlash against that. The U.S. government. Well, are... let me let, let me get into this. Harry Truman integrated the military, but he also was president during the time of the Red Scare, and uh, people on the left were seen as the major proponents of civil rights. Right. Uh, the the um, the coming out of World War II and um, and it's really FDR and uh, during the Depression and during World War II who uh, realizes he's got to include more voices in the American government that the government has to support more than simply white people although he retains in the New Deal and to some degree in the U.S. military different racial hierarchies so coming out of that that war you have the um, the, what's known as a liberal consensus, where you have an activist government that is, is supporting equal rights for minorities and, to some degree, women in in some fashion. Now, some people are going to listen to that and go, wait, it wasn't so great, and I'm 100% on board with that. But there is an ideological shift going on there. And after the war, you also have Republicans picking that up. So you have Republicans like um, like Dwight Eisenhower going ahead and signing on to what becomes known as the liberal consensus, the idea that America, the American government has to promote equality of opportunity, equality before the law, and a rising standard of living in America for all people. And, of course, there's a, a, an, a foreign aspect to that as well. But with and, that, you also get a backlash, and that backlash finds its home in a Republican Party that doesn't like business regulation. They really start out not liking, liking business regulation and being perfectly willing to have African-American support for that, but that's going to shift really dramatically in 18, 1964 with the nomination of Barry Goldwater for the presidency. And then later we have Ronald Reagan uh, with his anecdote about the welfare queen. Now, now Goldwater was from the West, so was he presenting himself as a kind of uh, a hard scrabble cowboy? Yeah, isn't it great? He, he, you, you may remember all the pictures on Life magazine and things like that of Goldwater in his in his cowboy hat and in his autobiography. He talks about how his grandparents came to Arizona and they, you know, lived on three beans and a burrow. And I'm making that up. That's not exactly what they said, but uh -huh. that's the gist of it. And um, and the reality was that, in fact, while that was true, the Goldwaters who came to Arizona made their careers in um, in the department store business, and they were able to function because of the extraordinary amount of de of um, government money that poured into Arizona in the early 20th century, and then during and after World War II. Goldwater himself was a was a young man of great wealth. He didn't have to carry money because he could just sign his father's name in any store in town. 
He dropped out of college because he didn't feel like going any longer, and he married an heiress. So the idea that he was some hard scrabble cowboy was really simply him tying into that American mythology. But five of the six states that voted for Goldwater were in the Deep South. Well, part of his mythology, this is in 1964 you're talking about, part of that mythology, as I say, goes back to the post-Civil War cowboy, the idea that the people in the West were making it on their own without any help from the government, which, as his own biography proves, was simply not the case. But one of the things that he does, both in 1960 and then in 1964, there's actually a move to send him to the presidency in 1960, and it doesn't go anywhere. But we get from that uh, the, the book, The Conscience of a Conservative, that's ghostwritten by William F. Buckley Jr.'s brother-in-law, L. Brent Bazell. And that uh, document, that um, Conscience of a Conservative, basically says the government needs to stay out of all economic regulation, and mm -hmm. it, it really can't do this sort of redistribution of wealth that means that African-Americans will get these, as I say, benefits that they say are, um, are hampering white independence, white liberty through tax dollars. So they write this document in 18, 1960, and then when Goldwater runs in 1964, it's really clear when he is talking about how the government can't get involved in things like, um, like desegregation and because that's going to infringe on liberty, this is an idea that really works in the American South. And in 64, quite, quite visibly, the Dixiecrats, who were a political party that was designed to enforce white supremacy across the South, and they're led by Strom Thurmond of South Carolina. Strom Thurmond switches his vote very publicly and says he will back a Republican and he will back Barry Goldwater. So in 68, 1968, when Richard Nixon is trying to cobble together a, a coalition because he's got the Dixiecrats running around out there and he's got Republicans and he's got Democrats and he's trying to put something together, he actually goes and he talks to Strom Thurmond and he says, if you, if you will continue your support for the Republican Party, I will stop using the federal government to push desegregation. And the Southern that's strategy. Later, that's what becomes known as the Southern strategy, exactly. And so we have a situation where now the Republican Party uh, is, has flip-flopped. The, the, it is now uh, the party uh, uh, that uh, is similar to what the Democrats had been uh, in the 19th century, at least the early part of the 19th century. I mean, the, the, uh, after the Civil War. Um, uh, so how did, but, but Goldwater's defeat seemed to, at the time, to be the end of extreme movement conservatism. How were conservatives able to fight their way back from being marginalized? Well, in a, in a couple of ways. And the first is one that harks back to what I just said about supporting your radio station. And that is that while observers looked at the fact that Goldwater crashed and burned in 64, he only got his home state of Arizona, which almost every presidential candidate does, and he got five deep southern states. But, of course, um, Lyndon Baines Johnson took everything else. Um, they looked and they said, he's, he's done, he's crashed and burned. But what they didn't see was that because so many... Uh, more established Democrats had support, I'm sorry, and Republicans had, had not supported um, Goldwater. Goldwater had gotten his support from small donors and from, uh, from sort of marginalized white voters. And they had really run on a politics of resentment, and they had managed to cobble together this group of reactionaries uh, by looking at the, at, the, at the local people, the guys on the ground. And the Goldwater movement really went, if you will, populist. They went uh, into local elections. They changed local um, 
school boards. They had local letters that they wrote to and from each other. And later on, they started faxing each other. And now, of course, you can see that kind of movement on the Internet and in chat rooms and places like that. But the idea that they went sort of sort of underground was one very effective thing because they started taking over and changing politics at the local level, which I think is happening now amongst uh, uh, more progressive thinkers. But then they also had the, the backing of the um, reactionary business leaders. And that you can see really dramatically by 1971 in the Powell Memo by Lewis Powell, in which he says, you know, we, we who believe in liberty, who believe that the government must let business do whatever it wants, are losing ground to this liberalism or communism or socialism because we're not controlling the media, because we're not controlling universities, because we're not controlling the way people think. And we need to start think tanks, and we need to work very actively to take over those public discourse spaces in order to change the way America does business. And that power sure. memo largely has been implemented. So that, that combination of the, the, the guys with the money and the people who are doing the legwork at the bottom became really a juggernaut in the 1980s. Should we be surprised that a Southerner, Lyndon Baines Johnson, was a strong advocate for civil rights legislation even before he became president, when he was still the Senate majority leader and was able to work out deals with conservative Southern Democrats, at least for a time, uh, for example, signing not only civil rights acts, but also signing into law the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, which abolished national origins formula that had been the basis of U.S. immigration policy since the 1920s and seems to have kind of come back just recently because that act removed de facto discrimination against Southern and Eastern Europeans, Asians, and other non-Western European ethnic groups from American immigration policy. Yeah, he's a really interesting character. He, I, I find him one of the, the more interesting characters in American history. You have to remember, of course, that he is coming on the heels as a Democrat of FDR and thinking about the world in that particular way. But one of the reasons he is able to do as much as he can, I've, I, I've always thought, and this is obviously not original to me, they're wonderful, wonderful scholars of, of LBJ, is that he was both a Southerner and a Westerner. And he put on those different hats at different times to be able to get certain things through. So, of course, he supported as a Southerner in part and able to do things that way. But then he comes out and, and has the clout to pass things like the Civil Rights Act. And, of course, he had the goodwill behind him in, in, for the horrible reason that JFK had been assassinated. We have very little time left, and uh, so I don't know how much we can get to Newt Gingrich and also the, uh, the symbolism of the Confederate flag, which people thought would disappear right after the Civil War. Uh, I guess re reappeared when the United Daughters of the Confederacy started uh, their campaign in, in the late 19th century. But why was Newt Gingrich so effective in transforming American politics with manipulative language? Well, he does two things. First of all, he quite deliberately tells incoming Republican uh, Congr uh, Congress people to use really derogatory negative language about Democrats and really positive language about uh, Republicans. And, they, and he also really pushed the idea that the Republican movement conservatism, the idea that uh, the government must do nothing but promote big business and religion, really was the central way that you should look at American society, and that if media was not covering that equally to the idea that government should actually 
provide a basic social safety net and regulate business and promote infrastructure, that, that the media was being unfair, that it was being biased. So he does that. He also threatens uh, traditional Republicans, that is, Republicans who believe in the liberal consensus, Republicans like Eisenhower and Nelson Rockefeller and, to some degree, George H.W. Bush, those more traditional Republicans who might have a business bent but who agree the government has a role to play in the economy and in a basic social safety net. A basic social safety net. He switches the, the game, and he says those traditional Republicans are Republicans in name only. And people Rhinos. Like him, Rhinos and people like him, the, um, the the radical extremists who want to destroy the New Deal state, are true Republicans. And when he does that, what he says to traditional Republicans, um, if you don't start backing what I want, I will primary you. I will get you thrown out of the party. And that helps to move the party right really dramatically. He also manages to slash a lot of the funding for congressional aides during his time as Speaker of the House. And the reason that that matters is because the, the Congress people who come in don't really know the ins and outs of all the legislation that they're supposed to be discussing. So they simply turn to lobbyists for industry to go ahead and write the laws for them. And this is when ALEC gets a really strong hold in the federal government. Sounds like today only, in this case, in the Senate. Why uh, the, the Democrats uh, had some pretty smart people. Why weren't they able to develop an effective response? Well, that's a longer story than we have time to go into. Yes, because we don't have another minute, maybe, maximum. Because the, 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 the weight of American debate in the public had switched so far to the right. What we say really, really matters. And the Republicans had shaped the way we talked, and the Democrats went along with that. Heather Cox Richardson uh, has been my guest, uh, also the writer of a popular daily newsletter called Letters from an American, How can it, which analyzes current events. How can people uh, access that? Well, it's on Facebook, and it is also on my, you can subscribe to the newsletter at heathercoxrichardson.substack.com, and I publish it every, well, I'd say every night, every morning about 2 to 3 a.m. Okay. And I'm so grateful that you are on our show today, Heather Cox Richardson, professor of history at Boston College, whose previous works include West from Appomattox and To Make Men Free. The one we've been discussing is How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America from Oxford University Press. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman, who prepared today's interview, and to our executive producer, Jesse Lynn, and to Reggie Johnson, our live engineer, for all of their work throughout the week. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. You can also reach me at my email address, LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter. Before I sign off today, I'd like to take just a a couple of minutes, or a moment actually, to ask for your support for this station. If you care about Leonard Lopez at Large and all of the great programs on WBAI, uh, we need your help to keep the station alive. So please step up right now to make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with. Uh, our website is give2wbai.org. That's given the number 2wbai.org. Or call 516-620-3602 right now. 
Um, on Monday, my guest will be Dylan Taylor Lehman, the author of Sealand, the true story of the world's most stubborn micro nation and its eccentric royal family. Have a great weekend.